Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the paediatric medical education podcast. Remember, you can hear our entire back catalogue of episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and of course our SoundCloud. So please tell your colleagues and friends and hit that subscribe button. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Um, welcome to this week's Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast. Uh, my name's Chris White. I'm an advanced practitioner out of Queen's Medical Centre's Children's A&E. And today we're talking about safety netting. And I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Edward Snelson from Sheffield. And I'll let him give himself an introduction. Yeah, so thanks for having me along, Chris. Um, my name's Edward. I'm a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Edward, from my point of view, safety netting is one of those things that we don't really seem to talk about that much. But it's probably quite an important topic. Um, is that something you'd agree with? It is, definitely. Uh, I think particularly in paediatrics, where we have a more non-interventional approach and we're often managing cases conservatively. It's a case, isn't it, that in paediatric practice, uh, a lot of the time we're dealing with children who are very likely to have self-resolving illnesses, but we have to deal with that possibility that there is a more serious illness that either has not yet declared itself or is going to develop later. And so we need to safety net in order to deal with those circumstances. So I suppose one of the key things is, in your opinion, what makes good safety netting and how does that differ from bad safety netting? So good safety netting, I think, is part of a consultation as a whole. Of course, it starts with uh, hearing the story that the, uh, that's relevant to the presentation so that we can provide bespoke safety netting. Um, it's probably never the same twice if we uh, do things really well. I think that's really true. Um, one of the things which I have found as I've got more experience is you have leaflets often to hand out around various conditions, which have the, the generic advice, which is important for everyone to get. But then tailoring those uh, information to the specific situation can then make a real difference to the individual parent. Do you guys use the kind of discharge leaflets in Sheffield? And how do you feel that affects people's ability to safety net? Uh, we do. Uh, we use uh, leaflets. We're looking at using more online resources, you know, the potential for sending people links via text or using QR codes. So new technologies that will undoubtedly replace leaflets. Whatever the form of that it is useful to back up verbal safety netting, but I think there is always that small risk that people see it is, as a thing that replaces safety netting and that people say, well, you know, I've given you a leaflet, that covers everything. And I don't think that that's a good thing if that's what happens because we want to give people the opportunity to hear it put in a, in a personalised way and also for them to be able to ask questions. You can't ask questions of a leaflet or a website, can you? No, I think that's a really valid point and something which I've begun to realise more and more is important. So how do you guys train and support your juniors and support your clinicians as they're, they're learning safety netting? And to go from the, your child's got bronchiolitis, it will get better, 
but it might not. Here's a leaflet to tell you when to come back to a more robust, holistic approach to safety netting around these children. Well, I think as you've alluded to, we probably don't emphasise safety netting as a skill as much in our teaching and training as we should do. You know, we spend a lot of time teaching people about disease recognition, safe management, appropriate investigation and treatment, but we probably don't spend as much time teaching and refining that element of the patient contact as we should do. Yeah, and I think it's definitely something which, when I reflect on my education process at university, there was a lot of time spent teaching how to recognise various conditions. There's a lot of courses around the recognition of the sick patient, which is really important. I'm not saying that's not an important thing. But being able to send children home safely is a skill within itself and something which I think we all find a challenge and how you make sure that the patient that appears well now but may deteriorate later is still going to come back safely is something which I find difficult if that makes sense. Absolutely. So things that I try and emphasize when I'm talking to people about providing good safety netting I think it's important that we make it clear to the let's say the parent because it's usually a parent that we're safety netting. Yeah. We recognise that the child is ill and that our decision to discharge the patient home is one that's made in the best interest of the child, Mm. that we are doing it because we think it is the best plan and that 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 is the only reason for making that decision. And another thing that we need to do is not to avoid using terms that might sound quite serious. But, you know, put them in the context of a childhood presentation. So an example I would give you for that is that, say, I'm seeing a child with community-acquired pneumonia. I feel that they are appropriate to treat with oral antibiotics uh, at home as an outpatient and discharge them. So when I say, you know, don't shy away, don't hold back, I will make sure that I use the term pneumonia when I safety net the patient. Um, that's quite a scary term, isn't it, for parents to hear my child has pneumonia. And the temptation might be to use uh, another term such as chest infection, for example. I think it's definitely scary for parents, particularly in a generation where more and more older people are, are dying of pneumonia and things like that. They may have other associations with pneumonia being a very serious disease, which obviously can be. So how do you stop parents then panicking and worrying when you've used a medical term that may cause anxiety? Well, the, the, you, you immediately follow it up because, of course, as soon as you use the word pneumonia, you're going to likely cause a fair amount of anxiety. Yeah. So immediately follow it up with putting it in context. Like, like you say, I would say to the parents, uh, I know that pneumonia is something that people worry a lot about, but that's because... A lot of people's experience of pneumonia is in the elderly, where it is much more of a serious illness. Yeah. And in children, having pneumonia is very low risk compared to that. And I say, you know, the the statistics are that nine out of 10 cases of pneumonia in children are successfully treated at home with oral antibiotics and that we don't need to see them again, do any x-rays, do any blood tests. It's a very different illness in children. And for the one in 10 that do end up being treated in hospital, 
even then the vast majority will be well enough to be discharged within a day or two um, because they tend to respond so well to the antibiotics and they they've got such sort of healthy bodies to begin with that they cope with what would be a much more serious illness say in an elderly person yeah so do you think then there's probably an element of confidence in being able to provide good safety netting and by that I mean having a degree of confidence in in what you're saying and that you know the disease process and what's likely to happen going forwards and if you don't have that degree of knowledge it makes safety netting slightly harder. Indeed people are emotionally intelligent and they pick up on cues in our communication generally So the more that we use language that sounds uncertain, it creates that risk that they won't take our management plan or safety netting as seriously. Now, of course, for those listening, they might think, but I am uncertain. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But that is fine. So you share your uncertainty in safety netting in an appropriate way. So the way to do that is to be confident that what you're doing is the best thing, but to share with the person the element of uncertainty, because that is what we're giving them. When we send a child home, they are going to be monitored and a dynamic decision is going to continue about that child's illness. So we are sending them home with the knowledge that it is very likely that whatever we're doing will The the problem will self-resolve. The treatment will work if there is a treatment. But there is always a small possibility that something else will develop, that an illness will develop a complication. The chances are small, but this is what to look out for. So it's okay, I suppose, then to show that element of uncertainty and that fragility, I suppose, in our decision-making process to the parent or the carer who has presented with this child so that they understand that whilst we think we know what the disease process is doing and we think we know what's wrong with this child, we can't say with 100% certainty that this is exactly where we're at. And showing that fragility to our process and, and our humanity is okay? Absolutely. And the way to be confident, I think, is to remember that we are in a frontline specialty, whether that's primary care, emergency care, or um, sort of acute paediatrics, We're making a decision about a clinical presentation, um, and very often we don't have that certainty about what exactly is going on. So the the ultimate example is the presentation, which happens most often in children, the febrile child with a focus of infection in their upper respiratory tract somewhere. Yeah. Now, people will start to do things in that situation which are completely understandable, but I think potentially slightly dysfunctional because we will say, you know, it's probably a virus, yeah, automatically introducing the various elements of that, which are, there's two possibilities. One is dangerous and the other one is safe, um, which isn't actually all that true, or that we have to place our bet, as it were, on whether it's a virus or not. And so I don't talk about whether it's a virus or not, because that something I just don't know when I see the child. You know, they've got a sore ear, they've got a sore throat, and they've got a fever. And so what I will say is that this is an infection in their throat or ear, and it has no signs of any complications. You know, so serious complications of 
and upper respiratory tract. We all know the classic things like sepsis, meningitis, mastoiditis, peritonsal or abscess. Yeah. In the absence of those, essentially I'm saying there is an infection here. In all honesty, I don't know whether it's a virus or not, but the evidence of my assessment is that there's no signs of complications and the child is you know, responding to symptomatic treatment and all the evidence is that it will therefore self-resolve. There's a small possibility that another problem develops. In the UK, it's important to say for an online resource, you know, the risks of those complications are extremely low. But the things to look out for are a further deterioration in your child's illness, them stopping taking any fluids. Yeah, remembering to say at that point, of course, it's very common for children in these circumstances to not eat. Don't worry about that. Yeah. So drinking, peeing and breathing is the other thing that I emphasize a lot when we're talking about safety netting the child with the upper respiratory tract infection. Because, of course, they won't develop breathing abnormality if there's no complication, if their breathing looks fast or difficult and they seem to be struggling to breathe. That is not normal for a throat or ear infection. And so that is a very important thing to look out for and get it assessed. Have I noticed you don't mention fever as a thing to look out for and come back with? Um, Yeah, so it's on the list of things that in safety netting, we have to tell them what to not worry about as well as to worry about. Yeah, I think that's a thing which it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's easy to forget to give the advice about things that this is okay. Absolutely. And sometimes people will say things like, you know, if the fever carries on, get reassessed. I don't think that that's something that is particularly useful because it's such a non-specific part of any illness. I would say the fever in itself is not dangerous. Yeah. That we don't have to treat a fever, but you should at all points make your child feel as well as possible. So if they seem miserable, um, you can assume that they're in pain, for example, if they are refusing to eat or drink, um, you know, explain that that's how it works in paediatrics. They won't tell you it hurts. You have to, to use how they're behaving and what they're doing as a way of telling that. Some of my colleagues who I've spoken to previously about things, they worry about shifting the responsibility to parents at discharge around um, the decision of how unwell their child is. Some of them lament the fact that we don't have return clinics in my ED. And I know that you don't do many up in Sheffield either. What advice would you give to people who are worried about that side of shifting the responsibility onto a parent to make what is, they feel, a medical decision about whether their child is poorly or, or, or not? I think with very rare exceptions, we can and we should absolutely trust the parents to make that decision. I think that they are very unlikely to do either of the things that we're worried about. They're very unlikely to reattend without good reason, that they will tend to want to stay away from a healthcare setting, uh, especially at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So we can safely give them advice without worrying that it will lead them to uh, reattend unnecessarily. And of course, it's the opposite as well. As long as we have done safety netting well, I don't think that there's a significant risk that they will ignore a deterioration and get seen again. Ways that you can encourage them to do that is to explain to them the way that it works. When a problem develops on top, say, for example, a child with a sore throat does develop pneumonia, 
that there will be a sign that shows the parent that they're worse. And that can be something like the breathing, or it can be just this general sense that the parent gets that this child is becoming more unwell. And they will usually have looked after children during straightforward illnesses. And so they will have an ability to recognize when something's not going the way it should do, not going the way they expect. And so it's about explaining the normal course of the illness. It's always worse first few days and then grumbles on for a few days more than that. And the child is usually well by the end of a week. Um, But an improvement followed by a worsening is an unusual thing and that should be taken seriously. Yeah. Other things important to encourage parents to come back when they should do is to let people know that we want them to do that. You know, actually say that is part of what I'm doing right now. I feel happy to let your child go home, but I need you to come back if the child is showing signs of something having changed or become more unwell. And that you must not worry that somebody is going to think that you're an anxious parent. Because I think that they do. Yeah, And it's, it's funny, one of the, you know, you were asking earlier about how do we get good at safety netting? I think that the answer to that is it's a lifelong process, isn't it? Yeah. We learn it through trial and error a little bit. You know, we probably should teach it more. But one of the things that you do learn by doing safety netting is if you watch for the parents' reactions, you will see what they respond well to, what makes them more anxious or what they respond to well. And when you say those words, you know, don't worry that somebody's going to think that you're an anxious parent. You can often see the physical reaction in them that they think, do you know, I was worried about that and I'm glad you said that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, there's always the worry with the planned reattend that a parent's going to think, well, I don't need to worry because I'm coming back tomorrow to see the doctor. I'm coming back in two days. And so if they get a little bit worse or if they start to get worse, um, I can just hang on that little bit longer. Is that something which you've found in your practice? Yeah, I have come through my career to a point where I will avoid planned follow-up wherever possible. That's for several reasons. Like you say, the risk is, say, um, I don't know, we're safety netting and discharging an infant with bronchiolitis, and then they they get their safety netting, and we say, and we'll see you tomorrow or the next day to see how they're getting on. Well, that to me doesn't make sense because there's going to be one of three possibilities. The child who's no worse with bronchiolitis, probably don't need to see them. And the child is improving, definitely don't need to see them. And the child who's got worse, well, I want them to reattend at the point where they have triggered that anxiety. And if, say, for example, the child deteriorated at one o'clock in the morning and they thought, well, I've got a follow up 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, and then they waited for those hours. You know, we know with bronchiolitis that those hours can be crucial. Yeah. We want them to reattend as soon as they have recognized that deterioration uh, rather than waiting for a follow up. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's kind of how I'm coming to find more and more with my reflection on my safety netting, which feels like it's improving. But every so often you get a, a patient come back who maybe you think you've safety netted well, and then they come back and you think, oh, I, I don't know why you've come back. Um, so lastly, I suppose, how do you make sure that you have kind of a degree of understanding from the parent with what you've done? Because what you don't want to do is be like, can you just repeat that back to me so I know you understand it? I don't want to do an examination style, check a level of understanding. But at the same time, I want to make sure that they have a degree of understanding. Does that make sense? 
Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that in most cases, the, uh, the sort of the repeat that back to me is both weird for the parents um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 you know, may, may well cause a little bit of performance anxiety. I don't know. Probably the exception to that is the family for whom English is not their first language. And you sometimes do want to make 100% sure that they have understood yeah. if there's any language barrier. And it's important to use interpreters and foreign language leaflets or online resources if that's the situation. But no, I think, as a rule, asking them if they've got any questions and asking if they're, if they're happy with that advice and plan is enough. And the reason why I think that is that people do usually have questions and usually do repeat an anxiety if it's not resolved at that point. Yeah, And, and I know I said last, Edward, I'm really, really sorry. I'd just like to ask one more question of you. When it comes to you've completed your consultation, you've given you good safety netting, you've discharged this patient at home and the patient's gone, you've come to write your notes. What's appropriate to document to say you've safety netted the patient? Is it just a single line safety netted discharged or would you feel it's more appropriate to break it down a little bit as to what you've actually talked about in that consultation so this is probably where the leaflets come in useful because we're talking about the sort of the medical legal element of our documentation absolutely yeah documentation achieves two things isn't it one is as a record for the next patient contact and the other one is should anything go badly it's there to protect us I think detailing exactly what safety netting you've given probably isn't very useful if the patient reattends and somebody wants to uh, look at the patient record for that. And from a medical legal point of view, it would be quite difficult to document in full detail what you've told parents. So I do tend to write in my own practice verbal safety netting and then also exactly which leaflet or resource I have given the parent and I feel that that's probably my medical legal protection as it were should I, you know, we, I ever be justified and of course if you are ever in a situation where somebody asks you you can refer to your normal practice and document retrospectively or if you're asked what do you normally tell parents and if you have a, a standard safety netting that you give you can explain that then thank you very much that's been really great thank you for taking the time to come and have a chat today oh, it's been a pleasure i found it really helpful and hopefully the guys who've been listening to this have been finding it helpful as well so thank you very much thanks for taking the time to download our podcast this week if you enjoy our podcasts please tell your friends and colleagues and subscribe to us on spotify itunes google podcasts amazon music and of course our soundcloud thanks for listening